Welcome to another Unqualified Aside, where we talk about things that we're not qualified to talk about, but a little shorter. Today we're tackling DMing. got a list of things would you like to introduce yourself every goddamn time yeah hey everyone this is austin this is john and this is joe Uh, you're missing chris today yeah Yeah. no chris we hope he gets better soon yeah he's sick he's a sicky boy no no, he's not a sicky boy he's just sick he's a sicky boy he is a man who is ill he's infectious he's his his smile is infectious i don't know about that i've known the man for the man. A number of years. You mean the child? He doesn't smile all that. Um, so we're talking about D&D. DMing, specifically. Yeah. So we've got five topics. Well, do we want to say how long we've been DMing first? <clears throat> do we want to elaborate on what DMing is? Yeah, alright. Uh, so we've got five topics we're going to talk about. But first, we're going to talk about a couple of other things. So, Dungeons and & Dragons. And other various tabletop role-playing games in which... One person at the table is the dungeon master or the game master, and the rest of the players play player characters. The dungeon master is responsible for refereeing the game, facilitating the rules, setting up the world for the players to play in. That's eh, kind that of, <clears throat> um, and also for basically playing every character that is not ran by a player, or you could also call it a non-player character. That's a big one. Similar to a video game, they run monsters in combat. They run the villain's monologues that you can interrupt by throwing acid splash at them. What else do they do? That sounds a very specific example. I don't know. I've never heard of this event happening. Uh, make plans that eventually go awry because their players decide that they want to know what the goblin's name is and his family troubles. Make plans and then your players completely ignore those plans. Joe. Right. It happened once, and you left it very open. It's happened more than once, Joe. This is very true, but you left it more than open every time. You like to call yourself Joe the Destroyer of Plotlines. Look at you. You do call yourself that. And you did give me an award for that. I did. You knocked prone a ship with a spear one time. Fourth edition was weird. Alright. Not wrong. But yeah, um, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, It's very fun. Sometimes unforgiving. Sometimes unforgiving. Sometimes very frustrating. But most importantly, you're still a player at the table, and you sh- you should still be having fun. Yes. So, um, Joe, do you want to start talking about how long you've been DMing? I have been DMing on and off since 2000, 2001-ish. Um, starting in high school for a group of friends. I had a small break when I went into... A career where I had to move around for a little bit, um, and then about two, three years later, I came here and started DMing for you guys and a plethora of other people. John? Um, I've only been DMing for about the last 10 years-ish. I didn't really start DMing till after high school, so I've been doing it kind of fairly regularly. There was a period of time where I was running, you know, at least five games a week and playing in one more, uh, <laughs> but for the most part, I've been kind of that forever dm for a good chunk of my friends where i don't get to play in too many games but i run a lot of games right austin um i've been running games since 2009 uh in person and then 
probably around 2013, I started doing online games. So I think I probably have the most experience running online games here. And at one point I was running um, a game in person and then I think two games online and then playing in the one. So that was that was a busy time. But you can also get burnt out very fast. So um, so at this point, it's been uh, tw- what, what was 2012 years ago. Yes. What? Good God. Yeah. I do got to say, I, I applaud you for being so dedicated to the online play mm-hmm. and being able to do it. As you know, for a little bit there, like six, seven months, we mm-hmm. did uh, online for our game. And I hated DMing through that. It was the worst thing that I, I could think of. And I, I could not warm up to it. Right. But you've been able to pull it off for eight years. And that's damn good. It's uh, It's a lot of fun. And I think it's pretty useful running games online because you can do things like build out your battle map a lot easier and quicker than, um, or for me anyways, it's easier to build it out than draw it out. Um, you can move stuff around on the battle maps, stuff like that. You can also create handouts for your characters. Like all you have to do is just search for an image of whatever you want the characters to fight. You create it as an asset and then you send it to them. You can share it with only one person. Or you can share it with everybody, depending on the platform you're using. Um, for more recently, since I've been using Fantasy Grounds, um, it's not a... Not sponsored. Not sponsored. Hashtag not sponsored. Um, Fantasy Grounds allows you to do uh, animated battle maps now. So, like, I can take part of the battle map that's water and I can animate it to look like water. I can put a fog over it that, like, slowly moves across the screen. Music. That kind of stuff. Um, and then... The, one of the biggest problems that was part of running a game online was not being able to see somebody's face. So when we switched from, I think we were using TeamSpeak, we switched to Discord um, and has the feature to, you know, for webcams and stuff. Um, snapping that out as its own window and then pulling it off to the side, like really makes it um, a lot more personal than the way we were doing it um, at the beginning of the year when we didn't use our webcams. So. Mm-hmm. Um. And then where you have the online experience, I have a lot of experience running the weekly game at our local game store before the year that will not be named kind of changed all that. And that one kind of threw a lot of other curveballs that you don't get in a regular game where you're getting different people every single week and you can't really run through live because you don't know who's going to be there. And just the types of people you get, you're getting people that are seasoned players that just don't have groups to play with, as well as new players that have you know, absolutely no idea what they're doing, but they want to see what's going on. That uh, that becomes a ridiculously wild experience, and I've been doing that for about a year mm-hmm. at this point. So I don't know how you do that either, because oh. doing it at the conventions—that's just a one-off thing. Is it can still be, uh, you know, very difficult for me to do that. Mm-hmm. I, I sometimes I really hate it when I get some. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. Some kid that it's their very first time playing and I have a much more serious idea in mind and they just want to joke around. But that, I mean, that's supposed to be part of it is having fun. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, when you don't know what you're getting out of the players, it makes it hard to plan effectively. Right. Well, at least with the convention, you can choose your time that you want to run your game. Mm -hmm. So like if you wanted to do a more mature game, do it late at night. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want to run, and you can also put mature game and say nobody under the age of 18, you're allowed to do that now. Yeah. Or at least in the last couple of years, they let you do it. And then you can put one in the middle of the day for whoever. Um, I like convention games because you can play with people you either get to play with once a year or 
never like you've never played with them before and i've made some pretty good friends from the convention i've also met some pretty crappy people <laughs> and i'm like oh i'll never play in a game with that person so yeah new game like the, the game store games are kind of like that where it was nice having multiple gms i was just kind of the, the one that was the the original until we started getting too large of a group for one person to be able to run it and we started getting more gms and so then we can kind of you know focus this table over here is you know a game more designed for newer players this one over here is one that's designed more for people that just like direct combat right. this one's over here is kind of a mix for everything so that really helped but i agree joe it, it is very very hard to do and especially on a week by week basis, it get it was starting to get very very frustrating and tedious. Once you start not enjoying it and it's no longer fun, and it's like it feels more like a job. Mm-hmm. That's when you need to take a break. So. Which I mean, to be fair, it was my job. I was getting right. paid to do it. So lucky you're the only one here. I think that's been that could be considered a professional dungeon master or game master since you're the only one that's been paid for it. I mean, I wouldn't consider myself a professional. I'm just getting paid by my local game store to do it. Well, they wanted to look at doing it and they asked. Right. So, because I've been frequenting their store for the last. Right. Yeah. Years. We've been going there since yeah. they opened. Um, do we want to move on to some of these tips? We've got, we've got five notes yeah. that I want to talk about. Um, I'll lay them out here and then we'll just touch on each one. So uh, the first thing, uh, one of the first topics we want to talk about is the rules. Uh, basically, do you need to know all of them? And also the idea of house ruling. Um, the second topic is pre-written versus homebrew. So a written adventure that you just buy and run versus, you know, making up your own world planning versus improv, two vastly different types of being a dungeon master. Um, do you plan everything out or do you just go by the seat of your pants? Is that the saying seat of your pants? Yep. Sure. Whatever. Uh, topic number four is taking notes. How detailed are your notes? Do you take notes or is it all in your head? And then theater of the mind versus, uh, Playing with miniatures and maps or paper. Um, that's our fifth topic, and that's you know basically using physical representation with grid and minis, or just doing it all theater of the mind where you collectively share it in your head. So uh, let's start with rules. Um, as the dungeon master or game master, uh, dungeon master is a specific term just meant for D&D or Dungeons and Dragons. Um, as a GM or DM, do you need to know all the rules for the system you're running? We'll start with John. So I feel when it comes down to should you know all the rules, it's it's very important that you understand a good majority of the rules that are the, the baseline for how the game runs. You don't need to know the minutia of every single rule that is present in the book. You don't need to read you know your player's handbook in D&D terms front to back and understand every little bit, but it's still a good idea to have a very good grasp of the way the system runs at its core level before you ever even start a game. Because if you, the person running the game, doesn't know how to play the game, your players are looking to you for guidance, and so you're not going to get... Like, they're not going to know what to do if you don't know what to do. Especially if it's for a system that they've never played. If it's for a system they've played, they can help you out a little bit. But it's still one of those things that you should have a basic understanding of the rules itself before you ever start running the game. Fair. Joe, what do you think? Um, much along the same lines, read through the core mechanics of the game, um, read through the description of the skills and stuff like that, some of the feats. Uh, the bigger thing for me is know how to find the information, whether that's figuring out how the appendix works really well, um, how the uh, index works really well, or just which chapters in the book, or even where you can look it up online 
um, is far more important than having it all retained in your head. Fair. Um, I like I like that you brought up um, you'd rather it's more important to know how to find the information because that's something that I do um, or that I, I teach in my job. I'm a, I'm a trainer for um, company. A, a company, a call center company, and I have to train people. And we spend about a month in training. And I always reiterate um, and refocus on the idea that you guys don't have to memorize everything. You just need to know how to find it or at least where to search for it. And I like that you brought that up. Um, in terms of like knowing the rules like altogether, I don't think you should know every single rule. I don't think you should memorize stat blocks. Um, I think you should memorize like what monsters would be good in a certain um, like CR range or difficulty range, whatever system you're using. Um, I will not even look at character uh, classes. I think it should be the responsibility of the person playing the class to know how their class works. I cannot possibly memorize every subclass. Let's use 5th edition D&D, for example. There are uh, 50-something subclasses at this point. Nine classes, ten classes. Oh, no, there's there's 12 classes. 12 classes. There's 12 classes. No, 13 with the Artificer. Um, There's 13 classes, and each class has... um, Six plus. Six or more subclasses, so it's. I think it's upwards of fifty. I mean, Tasha's added twenty-two. So, um, yeah, it should be the player's responsibility to memorize and figure out how their class works, how their spells work. I'm not gonna remember it. I'm gonna tell you to look in the book. But, I, but like you say, guys have already said, is basically like understand the core mechanics of the system, which is pretty easy if you've been playing for a while, um, and then and then be willing to teach people how to play. I will say. One of the bigger things about rules is know when to break them and when to improvise. Because sometimes, yeah, you could spend another 10, 15 minutes looking up a rule, even if you know where to find it. Right. Or you can continue on the action by just making a judgment. As the DM or GM, that is your your right, your privilege. Make it up. Make something fair. Keep it moving along, especially if it's in the middle of a tense scene or combat or something like that. Sorry, I was thinking it was needing to sneeze. Oh, okay. It was kind of building there for a moment. Um, so I, I wanted to try and signal. Sure. So that I mean that kind of leads us straight into home uh, home rules or house rules. House rules. Um, so like you said, uh, making a ruling on the fly, a judgment call, uh, especially in the middle of combat, um, but then always you know coming back to it after the game or before the next game, finding the actual rule and then deciding on with you you and your players deciding which ones the better rule making the standing right i mean you as the the gm or dm can just make the standing like this is how it's going to work in our game like that's kind of part of the power of running the game because when when it comes to being the gm or the dm not a whole lot of people want to do it because it's a lot of work so you kind of also get a little bit of leeway and power um as long as it's fun but yeah there's that um and then there's also you know just if if a game has a mechanic that nobody likes or it bogs down the game um, usually those are the ones that I just rip out of the system and just get rid of them, like encumbrance rules or um, eating in D&D, like keeping track of your ammo, keeping track of your food, that kind of stuff. Um, I'll have them track it the first like f- three or four levels because otherwise like it's not really that super difficult um, of a game, really. I mean, like first two levels are difficult because you just get one shot by everything. But um, tracking... Uh, ammo, tracking food and stuff like that up to fifth level ish, fourth or fifth level 
it's it's reasonable to assume your players are making enough money to you know keep up with their um, their needs. And I'm like, I'm not going to make you guys track food anymore. You're able to you know go from town to town in a very short amount of time. And the only exception usually being if it's something special like a special sort of ammunition or food that gives you a bonus, right? Or maybe a special trip like you're going across the desert uh, where you would need to track something like water and food because it's not you're not going to be able to just find water or food. Unless you're a wizard, you can just make water. Um, like you said, very important that rule changes should be for the fun of the group. Um, there's another side to it, though, that I think homebrewing really comes into play, and that's aged systems. Um, yeah. Okay. Like, uh, D&D is one of the things that's always bugged me. Um, the spell... Uh, I, I, I don't know what you're No. Um, Sending? Sending, Me- yes. Message? <laughs> Sending. Um, because, I mean, yeah, when it was first written in 1970, yeah, it's up there. <laughs> um, you know, it was a higher level spell because no one could think of, oh yeah, I can just send a message to you. Come into the 2000s and then you have text messaging. Right. Something that seemed so far off and mystical is now so super mundane to us. Does it really still justify being such a high power thing? Or can it just be as simple as getting a text message these days, or even an email? Yeah, like I don't, I don't even remember when the internet was made. Let's let's call it about the eighties to nineties, huh? <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> At least emailing, like like internet in your own home, sort of thing. Yeah. But the idea of sending an email to somebody was so foreign, and D and D was made in seventy four. So, but yeah, that's the whole point of homebrewing. Anything is to make things more fun, or sometimes update things that have just kind of aged out sure what do you got to say on home uh house rules john so on house ruling there's there's a lot like as you mentioned with uh keeping track of ammunition for my store games that i would always run i don't have them keep track of ammunition i don't have them keep track of food because for things like that with people that are new and people that are experienced not knowing who i'm going to have trying to keep track of all that for all the players kind of gets really hard sure um i I don't want to bog down these short-term you know three hour long games with here's all this and so i i've always told people that come in it's like if you just drop a couple gold every time you're back in the town you're supplied if you uh, are not using special arrows you have ammunition just it makes it a lot simpler a lot smoother and it just overall makes the game flow easier as compared to trying to keep all of that down um and then when it comes to you know fixing rules there are a lot of rules like grapple rules especially are something that between editions can get so bogged down like in 3.5 you have to make a touch attack once the touch attack hits then you make opposed grapple checks and just have all of this stuff that's layered down which you know relatively makes sense thematically but it bogs down everything by having to make several rolls just to do one thing right um, and then like you have other additions that make changes to it. And then, so you, you need to start house ruling in from other additions to help it out. Like your own 3.5 game, we've transitioned over to Pathfinder skills because instead of having a list of what, 30 skills, it's knocked it's, it down to 20. It's knocked it down to 20. So house ruling, something like that makes a lot more sense. Instead of having a huge list of skills, you just have a smaller, more focused list. Right. Um, and that's where like 
That's why I like how 5th edition has added a lot of modularity for house ruling things. They even have a section where they specifically talk about these rules are just guidelines. Don't try and take these to the letter unless you need to. Right. And there's going to be times where um, there, I think there's going to be the three different three different ways that I can think of um, how you're going to apply house rules. So the first the first way is like just you doing it because you've ran so many games. You're like, all right, this is how I'm going to run it. And then whatever. Um, you don't really need, even need to tell anybody, just everybody knows. And then the second one is the, on the fly, like in the middle of combat, you're like, oh crap, we don't know how this works. Let's just make a ruling. Go, go back to it after the game, after the, cause you don't want to ruin the, um, momentum. Um, and then going back to it and figuring out what you want. Um, and then the third one, which I think is super important is the, uh, session zero, um, which ties in a lot with, with the rules and house rules. And basically you decide what kind of game you're going to run. We can do a whole episode on session zero, so I won't get super far into it. But it's a good time to decide, like when you're, like how mature your game's going to be, um, what house rules you're going to use this time. Like, are we using encumbrance rules or not? So stuff like that. So, um, um, another portion is building out your world or your lore if you're really going to be into it for multiple sessions. Like um, one thing to keep in mind about any of the monsters in a monster manual or folio or whatever else is that those are a generalized snapshot of them if you decide that all of your goblins are actually seven feet tall right that's fine yeah that's a homebrew and that's fine you can change that there's nothing actually stapling things down for you so that should again it should be about making things fun um that can make it more unique which will be more fun right if your beholders all have googly eyes then they all have googly <laughs> eyes Speaking of creating your home world, do you want to transition into the next topic? Sounds good. All right. So this one, um, just to recap, pre pre written adventures versus homebrew. So a pre written adventure, what would you what would you define a pre written adventure as, Joe? Any material that's been written for you. Oh, anything that's a, a self contained adventure or campaign setting. Okay. I would tag on to that saying it's anything that's published because Austin can write something. <laughs> That I run, but I wouldn't consider that, you know, a pre-written adventure because now it's a homebrew that Austin's put together. But once it's been published, it's now been, you know, edited and pictured down into a form that is easily consumable as compared to somebody just writing something for you to use as an adventure. Right. Fair enough. Okay. So that's where we're going to define pre-written as something that's been written by, by somebody else. Um, and then published, and then you're running your adventures out of that um, publication, whether it's a book or a PDF or whatever. Yeah. Um, even if it's a website full or like a forum full of information. Mm-hmm. Um, and then homebrew is, uh, what would you define homebrew as, John? Uh, user created, not for intents of publication. So whether that be, you know, something that is not being officially put out for consumption you can put it out there and let people use it, but you're not specifically putting it out with the intent for consumption. Okay. That That is the easiest definition there is. Are you putting it with the intent for consumption? Okay. Um, I think those are both two very good definitions of it. Uh, homebrew is definitely you just, or you and your players together, mm-hmm. which is usually more likely. Um, I'll talk a little bit about how I homebrew here in a minute. But you, you guys coming up with it together... And it's the worlds that you, you know, everybody at the table 
knows all the lore and stuff. You don't really have to write it down and you kind of just play multiple campaigns in the world. And, um, you know, you, you create your, the history of your world with your previous stories and you kind of build upon them and stuff. So kind of like our, um, the world, the world that we play in on our normal Saturday game where we've changed the world for the, for the better. And sometimes for the worse, (laughs) like crashing a moon into the planet. Well, that wasn't on us. We made a wish. Bojangles. Bojangles. Existing. Fucking Bojangles. <laughs> uh, we can say that because Chris isn't here. He was Bojangles. Right. Uh, but yeah, home, homebrew, um, which one, I think I think I know the answer to this, but which one do you guys prefer, pre-written or homebrew? Homebrew. Homebrew. Homebrew to an extent. Okay. I mean, that uh, is fair. You want to elaborate? So, while I don't like the rigidity of the pre-written stuff, it's kind of like Lego pieces. Sure. You get it, and you can just take whatever you want out of it. And that's how I think the, the best use of pre-written stuff is. You can take a certain element, a tool, a um, gadget, a spell, whatever, a monster out of one of those and slap it wherever you need it. Um, you can use as much or as little of it as you need. But I think people who try and run things that are just simply the home or the pre-gen end up kind of bogged down by it it acts more of an anchor to their creativity or a um, a stifling to the creativity than a jumping point okay in regards to that says how you play in one of my games that i'm using a pre-written adventure what is your feeling on how i'm doing with this pre-written adventure Am, am i bogged down with the rigidity of this thing or does it feel like it's open enough to be um not necessarily limited to the exact structure of the campaign. There has been a couple of moments where we tried to do something and you went, well, this is what the adventure says later on, mm-hmm. so really can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, like when we had Captain Cranky Pants, whatever his name was, mm-hmm. asleep in a bed. And yeah. the majority of... We, we were thinking we were going to just kill him because he was a major antagonist to us. He had tried to kill us. He was about to sacrifice us to his dragon god people. <laughs> And all we ended up doing was stealing from him, and I took his sandal because I really don't like him. <laughs> Only one, the left one. Ooh, so he's always off balance. Yep. Um, Master of minor annoyances, you. Yeah, he is. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, I do feel like there were points where, if this was a homebrew campaign, obviously, mm-hmm. um, as I have done several times before, as you pointed out, mm-hmm. um, we would have killed or at least severely maimed your big bad and then ran away. Mm-hmm. I don't see anything wrong with that. Telling us that we couldn't or maybe oh, no, no, just killing them. Okay. Early. And then like, that's part, that's part of the difficulty of being a dungeon master though, mm-hmm. especially with some pre-written stuff. Like if there's an NPC later on that is required for the story to continue, you're, you're not going to be able to allow the players mm-hmm. to do it. You're going to have to give them the illusion of agency and make them think it's possible to do it, but obviously something has to happen to save the NPC, which you can do because you're the dungeon master. See, in your circumstance, that's where it wasn't uh, like further in the adventure. He's necessary. It's more there was no way you guys at your level were going to kill him in a single sneak attack round. That's on them then. You got eleven. And so it. I didn't want you guys to get into a situation where everybody was going to die because you were literally in the middle of a military base. Mm. So I was trying to steer you away from it. Because you all were very fixated on wanting to kill him, and I needed to basically railroad you out of there so that way you didn't what? get yourselves killed. I think uh, 
getting off topic from the uh, no i was gonna say i think railroading can be kind of wrapped into the next thing the planning versus improv um i think uh to get back to more the pre-written versus homebrew um i think you should i think there's a huge benefit to running a pre-written adventure as your first adventure yes so the first time I ever ran a tabletop game was the adventure in the book for Dragon Age. And I actually ran it before I even met you. I know. I know. But um, you ran it for me before. Right. So. But then I, I, by the time I ran it for you, it was like the third time that I ran the adventure. So by that point, I'm like, okay, I'm allowed to change things because I know what's going to happen in the adventure later. And, okay. and that's when I started, uh, you pointed it out earlier, Joe, uh, basically stealing resources from other books. Steal, steal from TV shows, steal from movies. We literally ran into the Goblin King in your game. Yeah. I don't even know what that guy is. Who Lunk. is he? Lunk. Lunk. Yeah. yeah. Ran into Lunk, Lunk from next. Cyanide and to, Happiness. To clarify, that was two separate incidents. <laughs> yes. Lunk is not the Goblin King. No. Are you sure? Yes, I am sure. I'm sure. David right. Bowie is not Lunk. <laughs> he played good Lunk if he was still alive. I, I don't know about that. I don't know. I believe in David Bowie. I believe in David Bowie, and that man has too much class. Had too much class. There's still so much class that he had, it's it's left over. Lou Ferrigno. Lou Ferrigno. Lou Ferrigno could have made a Lunk. Yes. The Hulk. The Hulk. (laughs) That's just CG at that point. Back over to your your homebrew. Oh, yeah. Uh, Taking taking a pre-written adventure and doing that as your first adventure, 100%, I, I advise that. Don't make it a super long one. Make it like a maybe two to three to four session thing. Because um, even if it's sold as a one shot, it's probably never going to be a one night thing. Also depends on how long you play. Three hours is about average for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then jump off from there. Like use that adventure to get everybody immersed in the world. And then jump off from there. Even if you're running in a pre-written world like we were with Dragon Age. Mm-hmm. Um we we didn't do really anything to do with the video games until way later. Yeah, it it was yeah. like a, a, almost a year and a half into the campaign before we even touched on the or, Dragon Age Origin events. Because mm-hmm. um, I did that on purpose so that we I wasn't restricted by the video games. Yeah, and because all of you had played them and you're all like, "Well, this is was my decision in the game. I don't care what the fuck your decision yeah. was in the game." But yeah, that's that's my advice for starting out. Like, use pre written and then homebrew. Even if you're in a pre-written world. Now, if I may... You may. Talk about the dark side of homebrew. Ooh. And that's getting too attached to your own idea. Okay. Or not properly thinking about balancing things. Um, Some players can look at a class online that's homebrewed. Or they may write one themselves. and Or you might write one. And you can get so attached to the idea that you don't see the flaws in it or the game breaking or how oh, yeah. it's ruining other people's fun. Immersion. Um, yep. See, I, I feel like, I, I thought you were going in a completely different direction with this, with um, like homebrew worlds where you're sitting there, you know, you as the GM are attached to your idea of this homebrew world mm-hmm. and you are so dedicated to this whole thing that... If the players do anything against that, you have to force it oh. down their throats. And it's just, it. I don't that, have that, that is the dark side of it as well, to where you are too invested and your players oh. are not. And you want to force your sure. uh, opinions of your world 
onto your players that don't want anything right. interested in like, them. Like maybe you made this really cool race in this region of the world that you worked really hard and you want them to go and visit it. They don't give a crap about that. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Just do what I do. Pick it up and put it over here. Yeah. Make it in their way no matter what. You're not really railroading them at that point. True. Um, and who knows what the hell they do with the You're the caltrapping your idea. You're just yeah. dropping it in their way. Yeah. yeah. It's not a railroad. It's caltrap. But with, with homebrew especially, like you can get... As a DM, that you can get really far over the line with your homebrew worlds as compared to a pre-established world or adventure where, like, you can face it, party members are incredibly rash and unpredictable. You don't know what a player is going to do with their characters until they do it half right. the time. And so you could set up an encounter that's like, hey, like, like even in pre-written adventures you get this, where, hey, you're level three, here's a fully grown adult dragon. There's no way you're going to be able to beat it at level three at all. Um, actually, I once had a party. We were using uh, the critical hit and critical fumble table. Mm. Not the exact one that we use in our Saturday game, but it was something very similar. And they critted and they rolled on the table and it was decapitation. They were a level three party and they decapitated an adult green dragon. It was amazing. But that's circumstantial. And then I took that and then I took that thing out. Thank you. That's circumstantial and that's using an outside reference. But right. you're using just, you know... Specifically, Horde of the Dragon Queen from the first adventure they ever put out for D&D 5th edition outside of the starter set. Lost um, Minds of Phandelver, I think, was the yeah. first. Uh, that one, you face an adult silver dragon within the first two chapters, and that thing will wipe your party out if you're not careful. Right. A lot of players, like I ran a game where all the players decided to go and attack it. Okay. Were they were they new players to D&D? No, they were not. Okay. So they attacked it, and they were about to get wiped out, and I pulled the thing away. Sure. So a lot of times I've seen with a lot of homebrews from newer GMs that they throw these big encounters, hoping their players would be like, oh, let's not go over there because there's this big thing, and it kills all their players. And they're like, well, maybe you shouldn't have done that. Let's start a new game in the same world. And I feel like that starts to kind of get into the, the position of your homebrew is kind of like establishing itself to be problematic to your players because the first real instance they have of interaction with this homebrew outside of whatever you created or whatever you've given them is a big problem encounter that they have no chance of beating and you didn't do anything to to stop it right i think which that's also still kind of on the players right as a gm you need to help kind of also curb that there's um if you're watching anything by matthew covell um, he he has this thing that he likes to uh, he likes to preview the big bad early on in the game and put him in a position where there he's not the big bad's not necessarily going to be like a an asshole or something mm-hmm. um, where it's going to like you know entice the players to attack them but there the big bad is going to show his ability in some way and be, and they're going to be like oh god who's that guy and it's all how you describe him mm-hmm. and then they they disappear and then when they come back later they're they have a connection to them. So I, I like that idea of uh, throwing something at them that they can't possibly win against, mm-hmm. but making sure that you describe it in the right way so that they know they can't win against it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if they even try to, if they still try to attack the person, they're going to teleport out of there. That's what bad guys do. Yeah. But if you're fixated on, you know, your character, you know, doing all this stuff, you're, you're a big bad NPC in your homebrew world, for doing all of this and you don't curb them back 
and you just have them keep fighting your party, your party's not going to probably get enjoyment out of that. I don't know. Especially early in the game. Like, if you if you throw it at them at level 3 and you start at level 1, right. and they wipe the entire party, most games I've played in do not enjoy losing their entire party within the first few sessions. Um, I've had, I've had uh, a few TPKs that were um, pretty much not... You couldn't stop them because it was something that the party... Mm-hmm. Like, one group, uh, we were playing Numenera, he opened up a backpack that I told them was a basically a, a citadel inside of a backpack. You could open it up, it would... It was Numenera, it's fucking weird. And it would just flump out this giant full-size citadel they decided to open it underground in a tunnel to try to kill an enemy i'm like well all right are you sure and whenever i say are you sure my players usually know they should probably think twice about it but they still were like yeah i'm like all right you guys die and they were dead that was like session four so i mean that's that's a player mess up that's not you specifically as the gm forcing something onto the players that killed them i they guess had it, you <laughs> gave them you told them exactly what was going to happen if they did this and they still went through with it anyways. That that's a player thing. Not I don't I don't see that as a GM issue. It's when you as the GM are forcing you know an encounter on somebody that they definitely cannot win, and you are not doing anything to kind of stall that. Right. That's that's where I see a problem with homebrew for especially newer GMs. A lot of you know people that have GM for a while they they kind of pick up on when they need to pull things out. You're pretty good at it, Joe. Knowing when you need to pull things like. In the encounter we're in in our Saturday game now, more than likely, if we kill the big bad, the little ones are going to scurry. Well, not necessarily, but the the other side of it is also you have to plan what happens if your players fail. Um, that's that's more onto the planning and preparation portion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, planning versus but improv. You, you gotta to to stay more on topic of the homebrew. Don't get so attached to your big bad. That you are going to force it down their throats. Mm-hmm. Um, if they want to laugh it off, let them laugh it off, and then still have them go away and be a threat layer. Um, don't feel like you got to make them sit there and keep punching them until they fear this person, right? Or you know, otherwise mm-hmm. you're just going to be ruining that mood. Uh, right. Like everything else, make sure you're utilizing it to make the game fun for everyone. Right. I had I had a villain in that um, uh, that Dragon Age campaign who had. Uh, Pointy shoes, curly <laughs> shoes, and they were making fun of him. I knew where that and, was And uh, that basically enraged him, and uh, he he wound up being that much more difficult of an enemy because he was. I decided, you know, he was pissed off enough <laughs> from his shoes being made fun of uh, that he uh, basically went like full rage demon and uh, just unleashed on the party, and it became a much more difficult fight. And they were supposed to fight him. Uh, a second time later on, but that was just the final battle there. So <laughs> it was. Good. Um, I wanted to touch uh, one last thing on homebrew. Um, I'm not super attached to my homebrew settings uh, as much as and, and villains and stuff. Like I am constantly trying to find ways to destroy them in lore um, because I, me personally, as a as a GM or a dungeon master. I like to create worlds, like brand new worlds. I love the map. Maybe you guys have seen maps um, that I've made. Mountains. The mountains I drew. Those yeah, mountains you drew. yeah. I still haven't seen them for like a month, but they're ni- they're nice mountains. I need to see them again. I'll bring them. Um, but I like to just recreate worlds, like from scratch, and use little bits from my previous worlds that I really loved. And um, if you recreate it in the same kind of like cosmos or universe or something dimension, you can reuse things. So. Mm-hmm. 
um, the Pantheon of Gods, or um, maybe you like you really liked your version of Hell for this campaign, so you bring it into another material plane. So and that that was bringing up kind of one of the last points I wanted to bring up is when it comes to homebrewing. The nice thing is, is compared to a, a pre-written adventure, you are able to literally build a map however you want. Oh, yeah. I found with a lot of the homebrews I make, I love making maps. And every homebrew I've made, I've made a map. The most recent one has been, you know, just rough sketch out of the landmass. I haven't, like, placed cities or anything anywhere just because I want to have the players a chance to explore it and I can build it as it goes. Right. But, uh... Having that that map makes it a lot nicer for just figuring out where things can go. What's your what's your final word on homebrewing versus pre-written? Again, don't get too attached to your own homebrew. Um, try and keep things fair. Utilize the tools and resources that you can easily get from the uh, the pre-gen and have fun with it. Okay. I did want to add one more thing on homebrewing. Of course you did. Yeah, uh, <laughs> adding your players or even other people as part of your homebrew generation yep. for the world helps because it helps get your players invested in your world one and two you can get other minds down with your world one right of the worlds i set up i went to all the players in the games i was playing at the time and asked each of them to submit a character for a god in my homebrew you didn't come to me you weren't in any of my games doesn't time. matter still your friend <laughs> you were there yep um, you got the castling and you got castling. stanley or standis because mm-hmm. um, you were in two games i uh I do something similar every time I come across a town on a map. Um, I have the player name the town. I have them uh, tell me the import and export for that town and one one unique fact about that town. And I do that and I cycle through the players for different locations and stuff. But yeah, I have the players cycle through the different locations and take turns uh, going through that. Um, to, to Basically, they, they put their stamp on the world and they're more invested that way. So Yeah. And then if I go to a new region with the new players, they get to help me build out that region. Yeah. Um, let's move on uh, to planning versus improv. Oh, this is a tough one. Not really. Well, for, I, like I've experienced both sides of it. Uh-huh. Uh, I've built a campaign where I literally planned out, not necessarily every step of the campaign itself, but I planned out the entire world. So far down to the detail, I planned out the lunar and solar cycles. Okay. Uh and then planned out the rough points of the campaign, but then I've had other ones where I've had just a single line note for major events throughout the course of the campaign, and that's all I've done. Major events. So I feel that's like wrong. I feel like uh, the the last topic, this topic, and the notes topic are going to kind of blur together. So yeah, a little bit, yeah. Um, let me ask you this before we really dive into it, John. Are you more of a planner or an improver, improviser? I've really done both. I can't say I'm really one way or the other. Okay. I, I have some campaigns where I've taken lots of notes and some campaigns where I've barely done anything. Okay. But I try and do improvisation more than note-taking just because it works a lot better with chaotic players like Joe. You really, like, throw him under the bus. Joe, hey, what about he's you? He's a chaotic like, player. Ah, uh, he's fine. I mean, I played with Carlito, and he's a no, chaotic player. No, he, he is chaos incarnate. Yes, and so is Chris. Uh, I had, I'll get to it. Uh, what about you? Improv or pre-plan? Pre-plan for a couple of points, and then improv the rest. I firmly believe that if you pre-plan too much, you get too dedicated to it, just like with the homebrew. Right. Um, but if you only use a couple of pillars or like a scaffolding idea, right? maybe like 20, 30 minutes of pre-planning, and then improv the rest because it's going to go so much smoother. So 
Where, are we talking whole? Are we talking whole campaign or per session? Yeah, both. Okay, cool. Uh, I'm a master of making it seem like I have a plan. Okay. But in reality, 99% of the time, I don't. And I just kind of go with whatever works with you guys. Okay. Um, I Like, my pillars are my maps. Right. Um, some bad guy names. A general idea of what the plan is. General idea. General idea. General idea. And then, like, one or two gimmicks. Okay. And then I let everything else flow on the table. Um, I like your scaffolding analogy. I do I do something very similar. I just call it my outline. Um, I, I outline my campaign. I For both sessions and the entire campaign, I have a start point where I know the players are starting. And then I have where I want them by the end of a certain session. And however they get there, all happens in between. They can get there however the hell they want. Whether they want to, you know, bargain. And I'll put like, I'll sprinkle some like hints and stuff here and there. Like you can go talk to this noble or you can, you know persuade this flying dragon i don't know but like always a start and then always an end and then however they get there that's the improv so it's probably about like five percent planning and then the rest of it's improv but it's i have a very similar thing a lot of times people will comment they're like oh how'd you how'd you come up with that idea i'm like i'll be honest i just came up with it like two minutes before you even got into that room based on what you guys were doing and i'm like oh that sounds good so um, that, and then I use my map, um, because I love making maps. Um, and I'll just like look at a point on the map and then I'll be like, all right, I'll put, the, I'll put where they're, they're MacGuffin there or whatever their target. Cause I mean, you gotta use MacGuffins. Throw a dart. Throw a, a dart the at there. Yeah. More like Boom. a magnet. There it is. <laughs> Go no. Battlestar Galactica. Silo. Oh, I love Battlestar Galactica. Save it for the podcast. Bears. This is the podcast. Yeah. I like bears and beats. And Battlestar Galactica. And Battlestar Galactica. Now, for dungeons, if I know you guys are going to jump into an area, which anything can truly be a dungeon. It's just an, a term. Somebody's um, basement. Somebody's basement. <laughs> a dragon's butthole. A certain butthole. area of the... <laughs> yes, that happened once. Uh, a certain area of a forest. As soon as I know where you guys are going to go, I love drawing out a full dungeon. And, you know, certain room ideas, stuff like that, traps that work together, certain theming. But, again, 99% of the time, you guys walk into some place that I haven't planned yet, and I have to draw it out on the board real quick. I do feel like mapping out a dungeon is very important, so that way you understand, you know, the size of your dungeon and, you know, what's going to be. I'm the exact opposite. We'll get into the mapping and theater of the mind stuff. I was going to say crap. Stuff later. But, no, I've, like, I can't. I cannot just map out a dungeon like I'm that restricts me too much. And I can like if, if they go into a room and I have it drawn out, I'm not going to be, be able to reshape the room or add something else because they're looking at it in front of them for the most part. It just it depends. But you know how you reshape a room? Huh? Magic. Yeah. Move earth. And fabricate. <laughs> but with. Wrong? No. Yeah. It's. Um, because I prefer theater of the mind, I think improv is just more of mine, the, the way that I run. Um, yeah. but, uh, so. I will admit um, one dirty secret. Uh-oh. As I mentioned, I like putting together gimmicks. You filthy boy. Yeah. Uh, 100% of the time, the gimmicks are more for me than for you guys. Which gimmick? Like, name, name one of your gimmicks. Uh, no, not even Lunk. Like, drawing all the xenomorphs. Sure. For this last game. 
uh, for reference, uh, we're playing a Star Wars game where I put xenomorphs onto all of the creatures in Star Wars. Right. If, uh, we, d- if we never if we never return to the podcast, it's because Joe killed us in real life, Joe. Yeah. Um, turned us into xenomorphs. Yeah, he turned us into me xenomorphs. Like with Star Trek, where I built a copy of their computer system for you guys. Right. Um, oh, you're talking about like the the tactile, the yeah, the handouts, the actual the, gimmicks, the Ghostbusters for it. hotline mm-hmm. that you co-opted for other things for my car. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but like weird to say it that way, but you yeah. go on. Like bringing the PKE meter for your character that used the PKE meter. I still have it. Gotcha. Yep. Okay, I understand what you the, mean by those gimmicks. gimmicks are for me to enjoy and kind of remember each session. Right. Um, props. Props. Yeah. Then why the hell do I have a butters? <laughs> that was a thing a long time ago, and I can't remember the joke anymore. It was a gift. Well, no, that we also you that guys was said I was butters. That's right. Because yeah, you I thought that you gave face. that. I thought you gave that to him when we ran into <laughs> Professor Chaos. No, that, no, that, that was, was much later. Oh, okay. that was when I was playing Kai. Oh, that was a while ago. Yeah, was this was a Christmas time. gift, mm-hmm. like six or seven years ago, and it sat on my mm-hmm. table since. <laughs> yeah, it's just sitting here because he's in jail. Wow. Ooh, there's a bucket. There's a bucket. All right. Um, we, won't, we won't talk about the bucket beyond just calling it the bucket. Mm-hmm. It's been used for a couple of things, notably ice cream. It's bucket. All right. Well, <laughs> okay. So next section, notes, note taking. Um, I guess it would kind of tie into the planning versus improv. If you're an improv DM, you probably don't take that many notes. Uh, on the contrary, I have books and stacks of papers full of notes because, again, Sometimes they want to know everything about that goblin. Right. And then they come back to the town and they want to know how that goblin's life has changed. I don't care about the goblin. Yeah. Um, I make my players recap the previous session for me in excruciating detail. I'll even be like, even if they did a great job of like, all right, what'd you guys miss? What'd you miss in that recap? And get some thinking for a minute. That way it gives me time to play on the session. (laughs) Um, But then it's also for me because I just, I completely just forget what happened last time. Because it's kind of fun coming into it and being like, oh, that's right, that happened. Um, I do that with every game. I don't remember what we're doing in D&D until I sit down and look at the map and be like, oh, fuck, that's right. We're fighting a Rancor Xenomorph that's using a frog, like frog hemoth tentacle creature mini instead. And I'm right there next to it, standing next to a pool of acid. I forgot about that all week. I had such a good week. And then I got here. <laughs> and then I had such a good night playing D&D. So like I I don't tend to do a lot of notes out like if I if I set up an initial notes for the campaign like my current one that I run for newer players I have listings down for notes for all the people in this small town that they're operating in sure so that way if they want to go somewhere I don't have to come up with something on the fly it's there it is that's what it is and I only take notes if they're doing something important that will come into play later on so that way I have that reference later on down the right. road um. But for the most part, I generally don't take a lot of notes as I'm playing the game itself. I, I tend to have pretty good mental categorization when it comes to, you know, when things happen in my games. But sometimes it's in, it's not infallible. So. Right. No, that's fair. The worst thing to take notes about is accents. <laughs> God. Because you guys have all called me out on some NPC coming back months later. That's not and what I they don't, sound yeah, like. I don't remember what voice I made for random bar guy number 175, <laughs> but you guys did. I mean, I only remember one accent, and even then I don't remember it very well. I like the, the Doofenshmirtz character you made. That was a fun one. It uh, hurt my voice, though. The only <laughs> yeah. one I remember is Flighty. And then oh, yeah, Flighty. The Fallout game that we ran when I oh, did the, the ghoul voice. Oh, yeah. 
I couldn't talk half of the week after that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's why you stopped after that first session. Said, I know it's a ghoul, but I'm just going to use my regular voice. I, uh, in terms of notes and stuff, uh, I take notes on... I write the I write the history and backstory of the main villain, just so that like because uh, and I kind of write like the story beats that I know the main villain needs to take, not necessarily the story beats the players are going to take, but the story beats the main villain will take throughout the campaign, and I kind of find a good spot for it to happen depending on where they're at. Um, and then I did something new with this campaign I'm running right now that I'm on week like thirteen of. Um, one, I started asking questions, uh, which is something that you. Uh, inspired us to do. Yeah. Hi, I'm Joe because they can't oh, see yeah. you point. I'm yes. pointing at Joe. I'm sorry. Uh, I also pointed at Joe. <laughs> yeah, because I knew who he was talking about. <laughs> but uh, at the beginning of every game, I ask them two questions. I'm running out of questions. If you have a document of those questions, send them to me. I've got to give you one of the books. Yeah, that John works. has a good book too. Yeah, it's, okay. it was a, a book that I found at Target that was uh, 300 or 3,000 questions about you, and I just took a label maker and put your character over the top <laughs> of you. Because they're really good questions. Um, so I started doing the questions thing. And then, before the campaign even started, I had each of them write me a, a detailed, not like super detailed, at most one page backstory for the character. Mm-hmm. I also asked each of them for a secret that only their character knew. Which is something I've done a long time before. Um, and so what I did is I took each of their backstories and I molded it so that it would fit into the overarching story so that the main story beats the big multiple events of the campaign are based around their character's backstory. So like right now we are in the middle of a druidic circle that's on fire and the druid circle is where one of the characters came from and actually ran away from. Um, They're running from the bad guys from a previous character's um, backstory and then Another, a third character just got dragged to hell. So they have to go and save him from hell at some point. If they want to. I don't know. I'm not going to make them. Um, they should. But um, tying their backstories and stuff. So I, I wrote notes about their backstories and where I wanted to put them in. Which is probably the most note-taking I ever did. But it's making it a really, really cool campaign. And I'm thinking I'm probably going to continue doing that. Um, and and they're, they're way more invested in it than um, the combination of their backstories being part of the main story. And asking the questions i don't write them down i don't make them write them down i just ask them the questions to get them thinking this is where uh both you austin you joe have done something that i've played him that kind of did something similar i don't know if you necessarily took notes on it but your dragon age game that i played in where you had everybody have oh the origins an origin story that was tied into the main campaign in some way shape or form uh, for each of our characters, so we were right. all brought into the campaign. But we didn't do... I didn't ask you to re- pre-write them. We just no. played the origin exactly. session. Yeah, that yeah. was awesome. Yeah. And then, Joe, you did something similar for one of your campaigns, where we weren't necessarily pulled into the overall story, but we had basically origin stories that were tied to our characters, because that was the one where I played the pirate character, that you brought that right. antagonist from that minor story intro as a minor antagonist through the rest of the adventure, and then we finally got rid of it towards the end after we've been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. She harassed you forever. I, yeah, she killed all my crew. I remember times. she made you a very nice sail out of the crew members. I remember that barely. I don't know. Yeah, that was. That was, that was, that was a long I think that was one of the ones where you you had to drop out of. I was there for the beginning because yeah. I remember like at one point we were playing characters, and then you're like, "All right, so you're not playing those characters anymore." 
it's in the future, right? Wasn't that it? So I think that no that this one because the one you're thinking of is we were playing all the like outside system ones and then he shifted over to an actual like D and D story. No, this was this a one was, this was a different was one. like two down the road. Maybe I can't that. remember. I feel like because it was it was no. the one where I was playing a pirate that wasn't a pirate. Was that when, he, when Ryan was still playing Tim? No, Tim was no. That was Who before was I actually had. My current world and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so cool. that was... It wasn't Not to Scale. No, it was after Not to Scale, but I didn't have a full name. It was, it was after only not to like scale, before three that. countries that were connected in this crescent mm-hmm. moon-shaped uh, continent. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. All, all I know gonna, is... Probably going to cut this all this part. Because it's just rambling. Yeah, yeah. back on the subject. Um, yeah, so that's that's really notes in a nutshell. Like, it's, it's important to have some. Yes. Key but, things that players are going to remember, uh-huh. things that you need to remember. Um, and Stor- story hooks. Story, story hooks. Story, story beats. beats. Yeah, that's what I call them, story beats. And story beats, bears, bells, start off. Things that you think will be important later on or that you just enjoyed sometimes. Yeah, yeah no, that's fair. Like you can pull up a minor character note from a while back and loop that into this fun adventure story. Like, <laughs> I remember when I was funny. I have memories. Moving on. To the fifth and final topic, which is theater of the mind versus miniatures and paper. I know. I get, I think I can start this off because I think I'm probably the the one that does theater of the mind the most. I very rarely use a map and miniatures. The only time I've ever used a map and miniatures is when it's important to know the exact positioning. So let's say they're fighting on the cliffside and you need to know exactly how far away you are from the cliff. Or if it's like a boss battle where like usually big big bads have like area of effect stuff and you need to know exactly who's in your way if you want a thunder wave or fireball or something like that that that's pretty much the only time i've ever used maps um i can think i could probably count on two hands the amount of times i've used maps i mean i only have two hands less than 10 10 or less times in my entire D or rpg career that i've used maps i'm definitely more of a theater of the mind guy why are you giving me that look john just because okay um mini, minis and paper are cool like i said for important events but most of the time theater of the minds i enjoy because one it's a little bit less work for the gm or the dm and i can focus on other w- more important at least in my opinion things of the story um and then also you have the ability to let each and every person imagine the battlefield in their own way uh, or the event or the town or whatever as long as you're giving really good description and making sure that each player knows, like, all right, this is about the size of the room. This is what the floor is made of, like if there's water or slime or whatever. As long as you make sure they know the important parts of the environment. Copious amounts of drool. Yeah, copious amounts of drool. Acid. Lots of acid. Um, Bojangles, if he's there. You yeah. Make sure to tell them about Bojangles. Um, I think Theater of the Mind is really cool because um, everybody can imagine it in their own way. And that's also part of the shared experience of uh, building a world together in a shared imagination sort of thing. So, yeah, that's really all I have to say about Theater of the Mind versus minis. Uh, so, I mean, I tend to kind of split it up quite a bit. If it's a smaller scale encounter, you know, one or two enemies at most, I really don't need a whole lot of positioning. But when you start, you know, jumping up to, you know, five plus enemies on top of your player characters, right. a lot of people really like to know where they're at. Right. And 
running the game for the store really shows how much there is that you need to keep track of in your head if you're running Theater of the Mind. Because a lot of new players don't understand how to do Theater of the Mind very well. Some can pick up on it pretty quick, but there's a good chunk of them that just don't understand it. They, they can't see it in front of them because a lot of them are coming from a video game background. Right. So they know where everything is. They can see where everything is. And then coming over to D&D or you know Pathfinder or anything like that and not knowing where things are just by looking at it, they're, they'll have a hard time struggling. And so you have to do a lot more theater of the mind planning in your head when you're dealing with newer players or people that just don't get theater of the mind. Because now they're like, well, how far away am I? Well, you're 25 meters or, oh, you're 15 feet. And then your, your buddy over there is 35 feet. So if he double moves, he'll be able to get there. But you only have to single move. And it's it becomes a lot more work for you depending on what group you're playing with. Fair. Uh, but as you said, you know, needing to know where positioning is, it is much more useful to have that board in front of you, even if it's just a rough sketch of... I, I've used this quite a bit in one of my games, it's mostly newer players right now, that they, even if I don't draw a map, I want to do theater of the mind, they themselves will pull out dice to figure out their positioning. Okay. And they'll make their own rough sketching, but it's not grid-based or anything. It's just, here's where they're at, here's where we're at. So they have the visual ideas to where it's at. Joe, what are your thoughts? Um, obviously, I like my uh, my battle grid and my miniatures. Part of it is I like collecting them. I have tons of maps. I have tons of minis. I've got VHS cases, which pro tip, fit miniatures exactly right for the one-inch scale. Um, I like drawing things out. Like John said, sometimes it's nice to have that exact um, measurement. Players can visualize what's going on. There's no, oh yeah, oops, I forgot about the vat of acid inside the middle of the room. Uh Um, The other thing, and I'm tipping a lot of dirty secrets, I can fudge stuff without you guys noticing a lot of the time. If I just grab an enemy and I go, whoop, because it's going to take him like six turns to get across here, and I move him just a little bit more, you guys don't usually notice. Whatever. I noticed you move I'm you, the the little raptor dudes. Oh, they have a speed of 45. I thought they had a slow speed. Yeah. That's slow? So, yeah. That's compared to the nine. other ones. Speed of 9, not 45. <laughs> I, I measure like, in feet. Yeah, <laughs> so, but Star Wars measures in squares. I, or as Chris would say, cubes. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I can fudge things a little bit to either make things get into combat faster so that way you're not waiting to encounter, or... I can fudge them to keep them further away from you guys, so that way if you're getting really hammered, right they now. maybe don't get up to you this turn. Right. Um, it also helps to keep things a little bit more kinetic. Um, like, sometimes I'll rip a portion of the floor, or someone will knock something over, and I can visually represent that on the map. To uh, to use a nice, big, fancy word, it's all copacetic. Yeah. It's all connected. No, copacetic. Like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Sorry, said it. I, I did have uh, one one thought I wanted to add about it. Um, it, it depends on what system you're playing. Mm-hmm. It does. Um, fourth edition. Fourth edition, you have to use minis. It is a very tactical game. Uh, I've said it before. It should have just been called D&D Tactics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's phenomenal. I love the combat system if I were playing a tactical miniature game. Um, Numenera. I, I was going to say. <laughs> Absolutely do not need a grid. Um, their distance is measured in three increments. There is um, 
close range, which is within 10 feet or in the same room as you, if it's a normal size room. There is short distance, which is... <laughs> right? Well, it's close distance. I yeah. can get to you and attack you in one turn in yes. this room. Um, then there is short... It's been a while since I played. Short distance, which is within 50 feet. Or one room over. Right. Or one room over. And then long distance is uh, anything between uh, 50 and 100. Or in the yard. <laughs> or three rooms away from you. Oh, damn it. <laughs> or in the yard, yes. Oh, okay. um, And then anything past that is just measured in increments of like this specific feet. Like um, a slug spitter, or a, it's a sniper rifle, but it's Numenera, so it's weird. Um, it, it, it shoots at like 175 feet or something like that. But in Numenera, you can either... Um, you can move and attack as an action as long as you're within close range. Or you can use your whole turn to move a short distance, which is 50 feet. That's that's it. That's what you can do. You can you can do that. Um, there are some abilities that will allow you to like move 50 feet and then attack, but those are pretty rare. You have to usually spend points to uh, or resources to do that. But yeah, Numenera, you don't need... It's actually preferred to use Theater of the Mind because there's not a whole lot of things in that game that like you're going to attack an area and hopefully not hit your friends. So, but D and D fourth edition, like you were saying, you have to have you, if I ever ran fourth edition again, which I probably never will, um, I would absolutely be using a grid and probably just run it online. Cause making a grid for an online game or making a map for an online game, a battle map is so much easier. So yeah, that's, that's kind of my final thought of theater of the mind versus minis. Do you guys have any final thoughts? I really don't have any more to expound upon than what we've all already mentioned. Yeah. So I think as a, as a final, just pin in everything, um, do what you're comfortable with, I guess do what is fun. Uh, do what you and the players agree on. Do what is fun for you and your players. Right. Do what's fun for you. as your fun is just as important as the players. Um, take some notes, improv or plan or do a good combination of both that's probably going to be your most enjoyable game um and then you know it depends on the group you're playing with if they want to use uh more tactical miniatures or if they want to do theater of the mind so they can kind of imagine it in their own way it's just up to you guys really but i think that's all we really have to say on the topics so this is austin sign last word oh what's the last word his last word Bring up a lot of this in session zero, but that's a talk for another podcast. This is Austin <laughs> signing off. This is John. And this is Joe. Okay. Well, see ya. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Athena saying. I don't speak French. That was German? I know. You know yes. That was the joke. Music for tonight's episode, performed and composed by our friend, Crazy Zombie Pig Boy. Find him at twitch.tv. A Dutch (laughs) open? A Dutch opener. That just sounds terrible. 100%. It sounds the worst, Joe. I hate it. I hate it so much. Okay. Um, We are good to go. So if you want to do the opening.
Who's your swan? Yep. Sorry, that was me. Jesus fucking Christ, John. <laughs> Alright, one more time. Welcome to another Unqualified Aside, where we talk about things that we are not qualified to talk about, but a little bit smaller. Today we are... T- <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that! <laughs> that was actually pretty damn good joke. And you ruined it! You both ruined it! You cracked it! Same time. No, he no. went first and then I went. No, I, I, I wasn't laughing though. I was just like, and then you're no, like, oh, oh. you, you made noise over there. I think you cracked first. Oh, oh boy! All right, Joe, us. make your slap. <laughs> slap hands. You're only annoying yourself. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Only <laughs> just there's a little. <laughs> Welcome to another. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, what the hell, John? I got Austin over here covering his eyes, you covering your mouth. If Chris wasn't here covering his ears, I know he would have been. We're all we're too old and too tired for this shit. When you record in the middle of the day, what are you talking about? Too old? I'm not even thirty yet. Okay, I'll go home. See you. <laughs> God damn it, John. Shut up. <laughs>